Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we have the privilege of being joined by Howard Chang. Howard is a serial entrepreneur, visionary leader who founded The Turn Lab, a Toronto-based marketing and tech firm. With a storied career spanning over two decades, he transitioned from a renowned ad agency CEO to create a groundbreaking agency model. Beginning his entrepreneurial journey at just 20 years old, Howard navigated both early success and bankruptcy by the age of 29. so, he displayed a remarkable resilience. His ventures have spanned diverse sectors such as retail, sports marketing, and technology. And here to tell us what he's learned along the way is Howard himself. So Howard, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Drew. And thanks, Jordan, for having me. We are excited. I, I really want to start yeah. with, one, how did you, at 20, what sparked the entrepreneurial bug? How did you get into this whole game? I think I would probably think of myself as more the accidental tourist when it comes to entrepreneur. I never, I was raised in a, you know, typical immigrant family. You know, my parents uh, came from Taiwan. I, I jokingly tell people I was made in Taiwan and um, they mm-hmm. were, you know, your typical immigrant family. You know, you got to become a doctor. You got to become a lawyer. You need to turn around the fortunes of our family yeah. in one generation. So that's your job as an immigrant <laughs> child. And um, I, you know, I wasn't really cut from that cloth. So I did go and studied architecture at university, but um, I, I kind of always felt restless around, am I going to be okay working for somebody else? Am I going to be okay climbing the corporate ladder? Because um, I always a, was a little bit of a radical in terms of the way I looked at my life. I was a, an environmental activist in my teens. I was like picketing town halls to you know clean up our rivers. And I, I really wasn't very corporate in nature. So at 20, I kind of accidentally fell into an opportunity while I was in the middle of university. Uh, I was a very avid cyclist. I race bicycles. I love bikes. Um, and um, I had a buddy of mine that was trying to open up a bike shop. So he asked me if I could help. I said, you know, sure, I'll, I'll give you a hand. And it, within a few months, it became evident that he wasn't actually committed to the project. And he actually said to me, you know, why don't you just take over? And I'm like, I'm in the middle of university. How am I going to do this? <laughs> so kind of on a wing and a prayer, I said, okay, fine. And I decided I would, you know, operate it full-time during the summer, part-time during, during the winter. And somehow, maybe by accident, maybe by force of will, a little bit of talent in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew it into a multi-million dollar, multi-location uh, chain of bicycle retail stores that specialized in high-end bikes um, and ran that for about 10 years. Uh, by the time I was 25, I was driving a brand new red Porsche, had bought two houses. Um, I was uh, definitely living the yuppie lifestyle in the 80s. Um, and by the time I was yeah. 29, I went bankrupt, trying to grow it on 17% bank financing, which is not very sustainable. Um, so that, that, cool. that was a, a, quite a roller coaster ride in my 20s. Uh, came out, uh, you know, little bit scathed, you know, lost my house, lost my business, yeah. lost my marriage, um, and ended up uh, oh. raising my two kids in the basement of my parents' uh, house for about nine months after that. Oh. So it was definitely a bit of a humbling experience uh, as my first try into entrepreneurship. What was that, what was that like emotionally to recover from? You, you have the early success, you got the car, you got the house, and then all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're selling the house, losing the car. <laughs> What was that like just 
emotionally for you? Well, let's be clear that bank took the house and the bank took the car. <laughs> there was no selling. Uh, you know, when the bank calls a line, they, they, they're pretty serious about it. Um, so well, a few things I learned along the way. Uh, I learned that I'm not the smartest kid in the room and that I need to listen more to great advice. I had good advice. Uh, my dad was an economist and he talked to me about the math of financing growth at 17% interest and said, you know, it really isn't sustainable. But I didn't believe him because I was young and foolish and pretty full of myself in my 20s. And so I think that was a big lesson. I think when you end up in the basement of your parents' house pushing 30, uh, you do think about life. And I had to really think about, okay, am I qualified to do anything? Like I never practiced as an architect. I went right into business. Uh, don't know if anybody in the industry would ever hire me again. So what, what can I do? So it, there was definitely a lot of soul searching in that moment. Um, if I, if I told you I had a quick rebound and was super successful, no, no, it was, it was, um, you know, hovering around the bottom for a while as I'm trying to figure out, do I have value? Am I able to take this value? And I even had family members literally say to me, listen, just go drive a cab. Like, you know, you're mm. not going to start another business again. Like you obviously are a failure as a business person. Go, go drive a cab, get a Joe job, like enough already. Like forget this entrepreneurship. And, and I had close family members tell me that. How did you, how did you resist or know that that wasn't the path for you? I don't like driving that much. So the cab was out. Um, but um, I had an interesting conversation with my four-year-old daughter at the time, who actually is a co-founder of my current company. So wow. I, somehow the entrepreneurial genes, um, you know, my son an entrepreneur, my daughter being an entrepreneur, interesting. But um, at four years old, I, I, I actually sat down and I said to her, you know, I think dad is going to, you know, I've, I've been trying to figure my way out of here. I have a an offer on a job that in marketing that um, I'm thinking about. My four-year-old daughter looked me right in the eye and said, you would make the worst employee ever. I go, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, you'd try to take over the company within a week of working there. And so she called me out. At four, she recognized that her dad was just wow. a little bit different, you know, couldn't really define it, but she knew I wasn't going to make a good employee. So, so, so that to mm. me was actually a bit of a turning point for me. And that's when I realized, okay, I got to start my next gig. Uh, I have no money. I owe my parents, you know, like a lot of money because they helped um, cover me as I went bankrupt. Um, I had no credit card. I have, I have no credit. So how do I start another business? Um, so that was the big question I had to answer at the time. And you probably want to know the answer. <laughs> so how did you answer it? <laughs> so how did you answer it? Well, yes, please. So tell us. I think it, when I say the accidental tourist, what, what I mean is I had to think about, well, what, what was I good at in my other company? So I, I knew I wasn't great at finance, obviously. So I was good at marketing. I was good at building a brand. I was great at growing the business. So I wasn't great at running the business per se, but I was great at growing the business. So I said, okay, what could I do? I knew cycling. I knew marketing. I said, well, I'm going to start a professional cycling team. I decided, you know, I, I know cycling. I know marketing. Professional cycling is essentially a sports marketing category. So mm. I put together a uh, sponsorship package. I 
I, I, I'm a, a ex, uh, you know, uh, racer. I coached a num number of members of the national cycling team um, during my my time in the bike business. Um, and I decided that I'd reach out to my network of riders, uh, put a team together and hit up some big companies like Ford, Toshiba, uh, and, and BMW and other companies and say, listen, I want to put together a cycling team that's going to race all the biggest races in, um, in North America, including at the time the Tour de Trump, which was a nine-day race sponsored by the Donald. And it was oh. hilarious because he probably didn't put a penny into it because that's typical of how he works, but he, he leveraged his brand name. And it was a big, big race. It was, um, it was a race that later became the Tour de DuPont that Lance Armstrong actually won many times. And Lance Armstrong competed on the national team, U.S. national team, in the first year we competed there. Um, so it was quite interesting, the intersections around this. So anyways, we launched this uh, pro cycling team, uh, title sponsor was Toshiba, and um, we generated a lot of uh, media for our, our um, sponsors. And eventually one of them came up to me and said, hey, listen, you seem to know a lot about marketing. Are you interested in doing any like pure marketing projects for us? And I said, sure, like <laughs> I got to pay the bills. Uh, so I just kind of accidentally fell into like writing and directing some TV commercials, never done it before. I I got into like writing um, technology sales copy for a, a technology company. Like you just started falling into this and you realize that, you know, yeah, stubbed my toes quite a few times along the way. Uh, I had a few people uh, question my abilities at times, but I just kept at it. And eventually um, I started building a marketing business. And um, the first one that I launched, uh, which was called Top Drawer Creative, was really more of a creative, typical creative agency. That was kind of like in the early 90s. And I actually grew that out to about a 50-person um, shop uh, over two decades. Worked great brands, Callaway Golf, you know, Honda, um, you know, great national and global brands. Um, and I did that for about two decades until I realized um, I had to make another change. So, so yeah, so, so coming into that business, it was a slow burn, right? Um, figuring it out, making lots of mistakes along the way, second guessing myself a lot. And, and again, having people around me second guess my, uh, me until I started gaining some momentum. Uh, so, so I think you're always going to be up against naysayers as well as market challenges. Um, the question will be, are you going to be resilient, resilient enough to kind of work your way through it? Yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm curious about. My next question was going to be there seems to be an an unusual amount of confidence and grit and resilience kind of displayed here through all this the different points of the journey thus far. Where do you think that came from? What what developed that in you? You know, I, I would like to think that my long, long background in both martial arts and competitive sports and other areas is a big contributor. And, you know, if you guys both look pretty healthy and fit, so I'm sure you guys do sport. And when you do sport, you realize, yeah, you're going to fall down a lot. You know, you're going to lose a lot. In fact, you'll lose way more times than you'll probably win if you're going to be in competitive sport. Cycling is a great example. You know, some of the best racers in the world, uh, George Hincapie, for instance, will tell you that his winning percentage was probably in the single digit. So you're going to enter all these bike races and you're going to probably lose 90 to 95% of them, but without ever competing, you'll, you'll never win once, right? So the resiliency, I think that sport builds you. So whether you're on a football field and you're being taken out in a tackle and you got to get up and play again, I think these are all moments that teach you resiliency. And so I think I carried that forward and brought that into uh, business in some way. Really good. So 
The resiliency, absolutely. The the ability to bounce back up. Do you feel like that also played into to the confidence in this of like, did the confidence kind of grow as you stepped into this new opportunity? Okay, we're building this, the sports marketing kind of team. Things start to go well, and I just kind of it just kind of rolls on itself. Or do you feel like that's something where you go, you know what? Actually, it seems more innate to my wiring, my personality. It's kind of natural, God given thing that I just continue to believe in myself. Or do you feel like, you know, some combination of of both? I think when I was very young, I was actually very insecure. And um, I actually had a bit of a stutter growing yeah. up. And so I had to kind of overcome like the stutter, which was, you know, as you can imagine for uh-huh. uh, a young kid in public school, that in itself was a challenge. But I think as I got older, I, I kind of developed a sense of bravado. And I think I used bravado to overcome yeah. that kind of fear and social awkwardness. What I've learned as yeah. I've grown in business is that if you keep learning lessons and keep integrating lessons, the, that bravado eventually turns into courage. And, and, and I think the yeah. true definition of courage isn't, isn't the absence of fear. It's, it's kind of doing the right thing in the face of fear. And so I think as I develop yeah. more maturity in business, I was able to be more courageous in terms of you know how mm-hmm. I approached every problem or every challenge, um, and maybe that gave me a bit more intestinal fortitude to deal with some of the you know harsher realities of business. Yeah, no, I think that's that's killer. I, killer. I had a mentor who who was like, "Hey, sometimes it is okay to fake it till you make it, right? Like, not when you're trying to you know show some I don't know hide or some lack of integrity that might be coming up, but like." There are times where it's like, you got to step into that. And some of that, like you're saying, like, hey, I get into these marketing projects. I have never done this before. I had never done that before. But I kind of believe, and I'll just, you know, I'll figure out the rest, I think is is pretty powerful. Howard, you were just sharing about resiliency. I was thinking about the confidence side that you mentioned earlier. What do you think developed that confidence? Is it something that you truly feel like was like nurtured into you, experiences have built, or does it feel like there's some level of, innate, natural, inborn, where you're like, yeah, I just kind of had it and I was able to bring it to it? Or was it, you know, somewhere where it was a little bit of a combination of both? Well, definitely did not have it. Um, you know, I, I grew up, Eng- English is actually my third language. And uh, yeah. when I was, you know, growing up in public, public school, I developed um, quite a heavy stutter. And to this day, even when I get really tired, I, I will start stuttering again. Um, so that doesn't inspire your confidence when you're going through public school as an immigrant kid. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think over time though, you know, you know, doing martial arts and doing sport, I started developing this kind of like maybe false sense of bravado. And it was my way of overcompensating for that lack of security Mm. or that lack of confidence in many ways. And this bravado carried me pretty far. It carried me to university, carried me to start my own business. I think over time, though, as you learn real lessons in life and in business, and if you're lucky, that bravado gradually turns into confidence or what I would call courage. I think courage is different from bravado. Bravado is kind of like running away from your fear. I think courage is more facing your fear and then doing the right thing regardless of your fear. I, I think seasoned entrepreneurs learn that the hard way through the marketplace, you know, and, and knowing that, you know, you can survive this. So you're able to face those fears more um, uh, holistically as opposed to just reacting and running away or reacting and attacking, it gives you a, a better sense of how do I actually build the right strategy to overcome these fears? You know, I saw, um, or I was reading a book by uh, Dan Sullivan. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, Who, Not How, 
uh, is one of his kind of big ones. 10X is easier than 2X, uh, but he has what he calls the four C's. And the, his kind of hypothesis of working with people is that two of the C's, confidence and capabilities, are usually what we try to start with. Like, I won't, I won't engage this unless I feel like I have the capabilities and unless I feel a sense of confidence that I can do this. And he encourages to let those two be last. And the first two C's are commitment and courage. And so he's like, first decide, do I want this? Mm-hmm. And if I really want this, then I've got to commit to it. And as I commit to it, I've got to have what you're talking about, which is the courage to show up to this wherever my capabilities are at the time. Like, I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to have the courage to show up to it. And he said, when you do those two first, your capability gradually increases. And then as your capability increases, confidence naturally rises with it. And it sounds like very similar to what you're talking about. And and what I would would highly encourage is don't wing it. Um, You know, back in the 90s, we had this crazy thing called the public library. And so I would go there and do all kinds of research. Mm. So before I wrote my first TV commercials for a client that I'd never done before, I actually spent like a week in the public library reading about film production and pulling a production together and what should a director actually do? Oh, here's some tips on screenwriting. How will this help me? And, and so I, I, I did my diligence. I, I taught myself how to do commercial photography that way. I taught myself how to do the you know agency. Mm-hmm. And today, obviously, it's a lot easier because apparently the internet's not going <laughs> away. So um, you yeah. know, using Google um, and search engines, you can learn a lot about anything you're trying to break into or enter into, and probably find amazing people like you guys. You know, Drew and Jordan, and to, or, and to give yeah. coaching and advice that just wasn't really really easily accessible uh, when I started uh, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's mm. so good. Just just the belief that yeah. hey, if there's if there's a gap in knowledge, if there's a gap in skill, there's no good reason why I can't find the resources to close that gap, right? Exactly. Exactly. You know, fake it till you make it, I think is a great soundbite, but I would, I would say come prepared, right? Um, yeah. You can fake it a lot better yeah. once you learn the lines. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Once you know, here, color inside these lines. Yeah, you'll be all right. It is interesting. I was just having a conversation this weekend uh, I went to the Clemson University football game. We did get the W, which was was wonderful, um, which is always nice uh, around these parts to to get the the win. But I was having a conversation uh, with a good close friend of mine, and he was he's in a new job, he's in a new role, and he was feeling that you know that inadequacy of like, man, I don't, I can't be elite at this because I was challenging him like, hey man, like this is where you're at right now, bloom where you're planted. He's having some bigger questions where he feels like he had a rock bottom. He's kind of moving through that a little bit. And I'm like, hey, like, let's go be elite at this thing the best you can. And so he's sharing all these things that I don't know, right? And on the other side of that, we said, well, you know, you only have to be stupid about those things for a, a short period of time, right? You can ask questions. You could go do your learning. Google's probably got answers to every single one of these things that you're feeling right now. And like, you're a competent person. You've shown competency ever since I've known you, right? At least well over a decade, Let's just keep, you know, just keep moving. It's it's only for a period of time. And it is interesting how that little feeling could either slow you down, make you question yourself deeply, or you find some level of grit, resilience, and just go, it's just a season, right? And that's what I, I think it was encouraging is like, when are there times where you see your life stuck and static versus 
dynamic changing transitioning. Have you guys ever been on a really bad date where the other person oh. just wanted to talk about themselves the whole time? Unfortunately, yeah. yes. So, so that was me. Option number one, but yeah. <laughs> so that was me in the 80s, right? So as, as a business yeah. person in my 20s, because I didn't have the confidence that I knew what I was talking about, I was constantly convincing people I knew what I was talking about. I think as I became more experienced in business, I learned how to be a good date, which is show mm-hmm. interest in the other person, show interest in what they care about, ask great questions, be a great listener. So, you know, one of the best pieces of advice I give young entrepreneurs is be a good date in every situation. Yeah. So it doesn't matter whether that's a new business situation, a customer service situation, ask, listen, care. Because when you do, you actually gain a ton of power in order to mm-hmm. manifest your destiny yeah. in business. Uh, and so yeah. I think that's one of the m- most important lessons to learn and probably one of the hardest lessons to learn as an entrepreneur. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was telling someone that the other day, they were just getting, it might even be one of our clients, was just getting curious about the work Jordan and I do. And they're like, man, how do you how do you know what to say? Like, there's gotta be moments someone's presenting a challenge or a problem you don't want to say. I'm like, yeah, plenty, but my, my kind of go-to is if I don't really know what the wisdom is yet, I just keep asking questions. Like if I can keep asking questions, I just think wisdom emerges where you're like, Oh, there it is. There, there's kind of the next step forward. Right. And I'm curious for you when I hear your story, again, we've only covered up until, you know, sounds like in your thirties, you have a fantastic sales ability, right? The first shop you opened, you obviously were able to sell and scale And then you hit rock bottom and you were still able to approach massive companies, sell them on this idea of your cycling team, get them to believe in you. Then you had people take chances on you to market their commercial and all that kind of stuff. So you have a sales ability. How, what do you think are some of the keys to, you know, really that, that sales ability you have and, and and this curiosity, you know, does that play into it? That being interested in the client, listening, all the stuff you're talking, being a good date, is that kind of key to your sales ability? Yeah. I, I mean, I think when people think of sales, they, they, they might think about, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross or used car salesman where it's like, you know, really forceful kind of sales tactics. I, I've never really looked at that way. I was never taught to really sell. I, I really had to navigate my life you know, as a skinny little Asian kid growing up in an all white neighborhood, I was beat up a lot. I've just, you know, I'll call it out as it is, right? So I had to figure out how to influence the people around me to keep myself safe. That was the first job at hand. And then I began to figure out how to influence people around me so that I could get some of the things I wanted. So whether that was, you know, how do I get on the volleyball team? You know, how do I, whatever. I had to like talk the coach into it in a way, right? (laughs) So I had to figure out. So I learned very um, quickly that my first job was to actually fall in love with the problem, understand truly why this whole situation exists, because you can't really influence people if you don't actually know the problems that they're facing or what they're up against, you know? And, and so I think that's something I've carried forward. Like my, one of my current companies, the Turn Lab, which we founded in, in 2018, was really built on the premise that, you know, advertising agencies are great at launching campaigns and winning awards, 
Um, but they weren't necessarily great at solving business problems using advertising and marketing. So after doing 20 years of that and realizing the limitations of that, that's why I started the Turn Lab, because the Turn Lab is really the idea is, is let's take the best parts of a consultancy where they do a lot of that, where they really do a lot of analytics and figure out problems, do audience research and insights, put that together with a true marketing company that can do advertising, media, all the stuff that a marketing agency should do, and then also back it up with a lot of technology capabilities, you know, the ability to build digital commerce and apps and other solutions and kind of put that together. Because I do think what leaders are faced now with is really complex problems, right? I mean, I, I, mean, I don't want to do a deep dive into AI, for example, but the whole landscape of business technology and all that interconnection is changing so quickly that even experts in the field are scrambling to keep up and learn. So with all of that in play right now, leaders are trying to solve big problems. So our, our big, hairy, audacious goal for the Turn Lab is to be the organizations that leaders go to to solve their biggest challenges. So you notice the word marketing wasn't in there. Yeah. You notice the word technology was in there because we're relatively agnostic to what the solution is, but we want to be there to help them. We doubled in size during the pandemic because we had leaders come to us and go, None of my partners know what the hell to do here. You guys seem like really good problem solvers. Can you help us? So we ran workshops. We we put together uh, projects that helped them uh, tackle discrete and overarching problems for the company. So whether that was culture and morale, whether that was supply chain, we jumped in there and we helped out because we may not be able to deliver on a specific tactic, but we were able to help them build a strategy to get them there. Well, I love the idea that you and I know the idea is only worth, you know, the ability to execute on it. And so you have an, an ambitious idea to take a marketing agency and do more than you've seen it do in the past. Add, add these extra elements onto it. What was key to starting in 2018 to actually executing on that idea, turning it into, we actually, we can deliver on this promise. Yeah, boy, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I think it started with, when I began socializing the idea to um, some of the CEOs that I knew in my network, uh, many of them who are cyclists, by the way, um, they all said to me, yeah, uh, we don't really invite advertising agencies into the C-suite. They don't hold any value for us there. You, you know who's in the C-suite with us? It's Deloitte, PwC, Accenture. It's the consultancies that are, yeah. that are in the C-suite. And so I realized that, you know, for us to have more influence on the big decisions by the leaders and companies, we had to be more of a consultancy. But, you know, I had never run a consultancy before, Drew. Like, I had to figure this out. So, you know, we did our research, did some diligence. I started bringing people on board to go, hey, this is what I'm trying to create. Connect me with the right people. So, you know, we went from like a 55, 56-person integrated ad agency. I shut that sucker down, and I opened up a 10, 12-person little shop with a curated group of people. And again, kind of on a wing and a prayer, we had to figure it out. And so we started very small, like our revenue in our first year, I don't, I don't think hit seven figures. So it was, it was a, a smallish business. Uh, you know, I think we just topped 6 million in revenue last year. So we went from kind of very, very small potatoes. And we're now, I would say, call ourselves a mid-size shop. We're about 46, 47 people now. Um, and along the way, we stubbed our toes a lot. We learned a lot, but we kept asking questions. We kept being a good date. We kept showing up and we kept being curious. Mm. And I think that's continued to help us grow. Um, and so I, I think along the way, you have to realize that it's not a straight line. 
it's got pretty jagged line uh, to grow. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do when you hit the jagged part of it? When it's not the smooth, the smooth up and to the right or the hockey, hockey stick growth that you all hope for all the time when the realities of the, of the ups and downs hit, what's kind of your go-to? You mean aside from curling up in a fetal position and sucking my thumb? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so just cry, so I, just cry a little bit. Yeah, so when the crying <laughs> stops, um, which you know hopefully doesn't last too long, uh, you regroup and you fall in love with the problem again. Mm-hmm. You know, like I had a so one of the startups that we um, uh, incubated with just uh, with the turn lab is called just boardrooms. It's like the Airbnb of professional meeting spaces. So check it out, justboardrooms.com. And, um, we, we've been growing, like it's been awesome. We launched it in March of this year. We're, you know, compounded growth of 40% month over month, blah, blah, blah. But our, our, um, our head of technology recently, uh, went and was basically creeping in on the messages between not creeping in. We have, we have the right to do it. It's in our user agreement <laughs> to look at the messages between hosts and users. And we saw yeah. a surprising amount of users and hosts working around the platform and, doing their deal direct versus booking through our platform. No, I wouldn't say a lot, like maybe 5%, but that's still a meaningful number, right? Um, And our goal, our thinking initially was, you know, we're going to make our our platform so frictionless that of course they'll use us. Well, apparently it's 5%, couldn't care less. They will do anything possible to try to get a deal working direct. I guess Airbnb probably faces the same thing, right? Sure, has to, yeah. Yeah, so so I laid awake at two o'clock in the morning thinking this through and I came up with, what I, we think is a good solution. Then I went into my team and I said, look, here's what I'm thinking. Tell me everything that's wrong with this solution. And then we spent a couple of days kind of breaking it down, unpacking it. And then we built what we believe now is the right solution. So I think mm-hmm. going back to falling in love with the problem in order to find the right pathway, bringing the right people into the room to help collaborate. Cause you know what? You're not going to solve it on your own, by the way. That's the other thing I've learned in business. It takes a village to create meaningful change. And not only can't solve it alone, but you can't put it in play alone. You need buy-in across the board. So uh, the, the you know, one man, one woman against the world entrepreneur mythology is, is quite mm-hmm. false. You, mm. To do it well, you really need to build a team around you that really will work and support um, your vision. Yeah, I I think if you're selling a solution 
versus truly understanding the problem, you'll always be stuck in that space where marketers get stuck in, right? Oh, I'm going to sell yeah. you a solution. I'm going to sell you a campaign. I'm going to sell mm-hmm. you some video content. I'm going to sell you a website. Um, so our conversations are very different. Our conversations are more around what's keeping you up at night. And they'll say things like, you know what? I don't really understand my customer. Mm. Like, you know, for the longest time, I thought I was the customer, but I'm beginning to learn maybe I'm not. I need help with that. Or it might be, I have a real culture morale problem. This pandemic has just knocked the stuffing out of our team and they're fatigued and whatever. I really don't know what to do about that. Well, you'll notice that in both those circumstances, there is expertise that marketers have that can actually help close those gaps. Marketers do innately understand that audience intelligence is important. Marketers do innately understand closing the gap between the company and their audience is really important. So we leverage some of those skills and then we add layers of kind of research capability and um, you know a- analytics and data capability. We host our own 10,000 member consumer panel. Like we really invested to make sure that we're using evidence to drive strategies. And so I think by doing that, you're changing the conversation um, and you're, you're, you're moving away from a, a solution seller to a problem solver. Mm, I really like that. That is huge. And you can tell the difference when somebody calls you, when you get in a discovery call, when you're on a meeting and they got their solution, that they're going to find a way to horseshoe into your problem no matter what. And as a, as a buyer, I'm immediately defensive against that. You know, there's a, there's yeah. a resistance to me where I'm like, you're not listening. How do you really know the solution is the right solution, right? But if you're a problem solver, well, then I, that means you understand me. That means you, you, you care about what, what my issue or my goal is, and you are now somebody that's invested in, in helping solve that problem. I love I loved that, that reframe right there. I had a really interesting conversation with a global agency network, and they were actually interested in buying our company. I think the approach is last year. And I said, we love what you're doing. We love this idea of part consultancy, part agency, part tech company. We're trying to do that too at a global level. So I started asking them questions like, okay, so why isn't it succeeding? <laughs> I learned that they actually had a market research company on a separate PL. They had a technology company on a separate PL. None of them would work together because mm. they didn't want to share their PLs. They didn't want to share revenue. So they were actually competing against each other versus collaborating with each other. So, you know, back to the idea of, you know, how does this actually work? It only works through those deeper human connections because business is never just business. Business is always personal, as you guys probably know more than many. Yes. And and yeah. you don't build those personal connections, you can't create real collaboration. And if you're only worried about your mm-hmm. PL versus their PL, you're never going to actually be able to be a problem solver. So it's kind of putting ego aside, putting PL aside, and really showing up as your authentic self with your client and deeply understanding what's keeping them up at night. And whether you can even offer the service or not, you help them with the right solution because even if you don't make a dollar that day, you've built a connection now that carries you many, many years forward that's going to help your business in the long long run. Absolutely. I mean, some of the best client relationships we have, we initially didn't point towards us at all. We heard their problem and said, but we know someone. And again, no cut of the deal, nothing. Just like want to help you solve that problem. Have you met so-and-so? Let me connect, make this connection and just building goodwill, building an actual, yeah. you know, exchange of value, I think is, is critical. And it's funny too, you mentioned the, 
the competition versus collaboration. That is literally one of the, the tools that we use in helping leadership teams is helping them find where they're unknowingly in competition with each other and yeah. how that is a huge waste of, of energy that like that same energy, if we could find a collaborative element would now be this exponential growth of our energies combined. Right. And so, um, I want to change this, the subject just, just a little bit for the listener, um, take a different angle. What were some of the key habits for you early on that might be different now at a mid-size, at a mid-size company, right? So when it's, you know, bootleg, when it's your, you and 12 people and everything is new, everything is fresh, what was kind of key for you doing your, your role well versus what might be different now that you're more established and the needs of the business are different? Yeah, I, I think companies absolutely evolve over time and the risks also change, right? I, I now have, you know, 46, 47 people. I'm responsible for them making their mortgage yeah. payments every month. So it's it's a little bit different than when you're 10 or 12 and kind of starting out and, and trying to figure this out. I, I think in the early days, you can make big changes faster with less risk. So I think you can definitely be more agile. Um, you can change policy, you can change product, you can change people a lot faster when you're, when you're smaller. As you get bigger, you, you're developing um, kind of an invested IP in your people. So you want to keep your people. You don't want to change mm -hmm. people very often. So you've invested a lot more in terms of building, you know, culture and morale and stickiness for your company. Um, we we are a certified B Corp. So we operate on a triple bottom line cool. of people, planet, prosperity, uh, like a Patagonia, mm -hmm. Ben & Jerry's, very similar. We run 100% carbon neutral. Um, we're 50% female leadership, 50% female employees, and we're 50% BIPOC. So we're very diverse mm -hmm. as a as a as a company, and we do that because our objective is to attract the best talent. Period, not the yeah. best talent that looks like us or the best talent that we know, but the best talent. Period, because in our business, talent means a lot. So yes, we have mm -hmm. technology. Yes, we have platforms, but the people capital is still very valuable. So so less turnover now, and I would say we're probably turning a bit more of a tanker than a speedboat right now because. And, and as you know, you can't turn a tanker too quickly, right? It's got to be in degrees. So we're doing more iterations to get us there. Um, I've hired a new CEO. Her name is Stephanie Hurst. She's amazing. She, um, I basically fired myself from the CEO job and gave her the job. So I'm uh, I, I'm uh, in more of an advisory and governance role for the organization now, or, or the unofficial rainmaker for the organization. Yes. But Stephanie comes from running a much bigger company, and she loved our entrepreneurial spirit. She loves the new model, which she is not that familiar with because she, because she came from a traditional kind of creative agency um, that was about maybe three, four times our size. But what she brings in is not just obviously her intelligence and smarts. She brings in the ability to organize and operate better than a pure entrepreneur like me. She, she actually describes herself as an intrapreneur. So she is great at coming into companies, helping them grow in a healthy way, and and that's the other thing about entrepreneurs. Like you, you do, we do need to recognize when we need to hand the reins over when it comes to our leadership or certain aspects of our leadership. And that's something that's hard to do because there's a lot of ego attached to you know your role as a leader. Um, but I know that this change is going to pay big dividends for the company because now I can focus on the things I'm really good at. And I've hired someone who's really good at the things I'm not so great at. So mm. hopefully it becomes a great mm. compliment. How did you know? 
How, what were the signs to you that this might be the time in the company's kind of growth that you might be best served to, to hand those reins over? I've probably known for a while, and I would say my mm-hmm. ego probably, and not even ego, I'd probably say habit, right? Like I've always been yeah. the CEO of all my companies, like, you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. And and so giving up that chair was interesting. And I, and, and I don't know whether I would have done it if I didn't find the right person. So we actually met and mm-hmm. interviewed five people, uh, all very qualified. And Stephanie probably went through about five interviews with us. So the poor woman yeah. had to kind of put up with us for a while. Um, and if I hadn't met the right person, I don't know what I would have made the change, actually, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad I met the right person. I think we made the right decision. I'm pretty confident we have. Um, so I think sometimes you got to take the opportunities that are given you too, right? So yeah. a CEO can't just say, you know what? I think there's someone else better for my job. You got to find that person first because yeah. you might actually be the best person for that job yeah. until you do your diligence. Man. I almost want to go backwards on that and just on that subject matter, right? Back to a problem that a CEO needs to solve, like the progression. Did you make a progression as you've gone from the 10 people to now at the 40 plus people? Did you make delegation decisions along the way? And, and kind of how did that flow if at the, at the highest level you could stay? How did you make the decisions of like, this is what I delegated at this point, because this helped us get to, you know, break through the ceiling. And then we were able to get up here and delegation was a key part in some of those. I'm curious, where have you seen delegation play a part that essentially is at this one with Stephanie? How about tell us, tell us a little bit about that journey thus far in the last kind of five years? Um, you, you guys probably know who's the originator of this quote, but I, I read somewhere in a management book that if you can find someone that can do an aspect of your job to at least 70% of your capacity, give them that job, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. you don't need to find someone that can do it exactly the way you do it, exactly how you do it, but find someone that can do it to a high degree of competence, give them that job, coach them, mentor them, help them. And, and I've been doing that throughout the last number of years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know uh, I'm at the point in my career where I'm not doing this forever. I, I understand that. I have to build that next generation of leaders. So I've been spending more time investing in doing that. And um, it's not natural, by the way, to be a mentor and a coach. It's something yeah. that, you know, you develop over time. Um, and, and I would say in, in my case, um, I, I spent a lot of time trying to attract the right people, recruit the right people so that the investment is um, worth my while, essentially. And so, you know, hits and misses, like not everyone works and sometimes changes have to be made. But I would say for the most part that that journey has been pretty successful. And the only reason why I'm able to now focus more attention on adjust boardrooms and do some of my philanthropy work and another work that I do is by finding and developing those people and trusting Mm -hmm. that they can do their do their job um, as well, or potentially even better than me. How do you attract the talent you're looking for? And then what are some of the filters maybe that you, you have in mind that you're looking through, like, you know, matching your core values or a certain competency they have, like, how do you attract great talent? And then once you're looking and interviewing, you know, what helps you make the decision as best you can, right? It's always somewhat of a guess, but as best you can, that I think this person would be a really great fit for our team. Yeah, so I, I think it was in Harvard Business Review. I read that, um, uh, I think they did a study last year or the year before that said 87% of millennials and Gen Z want to know the values of the company 
for the job they're applying for. So there, there's this growing, growing movement towards people seeking purpose and purpose that infiltrates their work lives as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're facing so much uh, global disruption right now. Uh, you know, there's a climate crisis, there's the, the economic crisis, there's war, there's all kinds of things going on. So I think people are looking for more than just a paycheck these days. They're looking like, hey, can I find a place where I actually feel good and more importantly, alignment with uh, in terms of my work. So I think for, as a leader, I think there has to be a lot of thought in, you know, what is your purpose and how do you articulate that purpose? You know, and the purpose doesn't have to be all, you know, touchy-feely. It's all about the environment. I, if you look at Nike, their purpose is basically performance and that's an amazing purpose. And if you, they can find people that align behind performance, they built an incredible culture, which they have. In, in our case, our, our purpose is to be a great corporate citizen, right? We want to mm-hmm. run low carbon. We want to run with equity. We want. We believe that we can do well, do good as we do well. You know, we believe mm-hmm. that business can be forced for good. That attracts a lot of people, right? So yeah. our recruitment potential becomes really interesting because we tend to attract talent that way and we tend to attract aligned talent that way. So even if you've got a bunch of non-high performing people, but they're all rowing in the same boat in the same direction at the same time, that's an incredible company, right? Mm. You know, there's this old saying, you know, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Good yeah. together is pretty great, actually. <laughs> so yeah. so that that's the one thing that I think we focus on is, is building great culture, building great internal feedback mechanisms for a team. Um, and, and that way, and also um, building ability to um, uh, mentor and coach them and, and, and help them grow as well. Mm. That's awesome. That's really good. What's, yeah. we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here. I know we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. Yeah. Um, what is, what's the current excitement that you have for the, for the growth of this business? And then what's the current challenge that you feel like has to be solved for this business to get to where you want it to? Well, it's interesting. I was at, at a, an investor uh, conference uh, last week, and I was telling a venture capitalist what we're doing at the Turn Lab. And I said, you know, we're, we're funding this uh, startup called Just Boardrooms. We brought in some angel investors. I put in some of my own money. We're paying for the payroll. We're, 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 and it's doing this, doing that. And he looked me right in the eye and went, so you're a private equity company. I go, what? What are you talking about? He goes, you're a private equity company. That's what private equity companies do, except you're doing something that most don't do. You actually know how to grow a company. You actually know how to brand, market, build, and accelerate growth. That's your core business. Your core business Mm -hmm. is accelerating companies' growth through marketing, technology, whatever. He said, "Um, I can give you access to capital, but you guys have the expertise and you're already investing Mm -hmm. your capital. I think the next step of your journey is really, really accelerating your position as a private equity company, a VC accelerator. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to rethink how you even look at your company. You're not just a marketing tech firm, you know? And and yeah. so that was incredible uh, to have that mm-hmm. conversation. So I'm in the process of doing my diligence now around, hey, what does that look like? How do we build this so that it's really powerful and works? And obviously we have approved product, Just Boardrooms, that we're you know, really able to kind of see, hey, where can we take this? So that's really exciting for me. That that definitely keeps me revved up. And I think yeah. we all need a little bit of that uh, fuel, uh, you know, to, to get up in the morning and go, yep, I'm willing to do 110% again today because every yeah. entrepreneur is faced with that every day.
Well, thank you to both of you. It was a, it was a fun chat for sure. Awesome. Howard, again, thank you from both of us. Thank you uh, from the audience for being here, sharing your wisdom with us. Unbelievable, unbelievable interview and excited to see not just where turntable goes, but where you go. This will be, be fun to continue to watch your career blossom. Thank you, buddy, for being here. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.